Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is America's 63rd largest city by population size and the 26th largest metro area in the U.S. Famously situated at the confluence of three rivers, it is known as the City of Bridges and was one of the leading centers of U.S. manufacturing in the 20th century. Today, it is home to world-class museums, schools, medical centers, sports teams, research centers, libraries, and, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, the most bars per person in America. And today, Pittsburgh is poised to be a leading global city in innovation and technology. Joining me by phone today to talk about the city's strengths and opportunities is Scott Andes, a fellow with the Centennial Scholar Initiative here at Brookings. He is a co-author, along with Mitch Horowitz, Ryan Helwig, and Bruce Katz of a new report titled, Capturing the Next Economy, Pittsburgh's Rise as a Global Innovation City. The research comes out of the Ann T. and Robert M. Bass Initiative on Innovation and Placemaking, which is part of the Centennial Scholar Initiative here at Brookings. Stay tuned in this episode for a new Ask an Expert segment, and after the interview, I have for you another MetroLens segment, featuring a discussion of broadband subscription rates in America's metro areas. All right, on with the show. Scott, thanks for calling in. Happy to join you. So we're going to talk about Pittsburgh. What is your personal connection to Pittsburgh? Well, I went to graduate school in Carnegie Mellon University here in Pittsburgh, and I just fell in love with the city. One, I have just a personal interest in manufacturing towns. I think there's just something a little different about places that have some sort of blue-collar blood in their system. But this place really is special, the interplay between a school like Carnegie Mellon that's totally focused on the frontiers of science and technology, and then a city like Pittsburgh that, while I was here, was sort of rebuilding itself in real time from its industrial heyday and subsequent demise to a world-class eds and med center. And I got to kind of watch that happen while I was here. It may sound a little cheesy, but it's a city that you can kind of feel the optimism because so many people lived through the hard times. They weren't that long ago in the 80s, and they were bad. And now to see sort of a city rebuild itself, you kind of get a sense that people are excited and optimistic, which is not the case amongst many Rust Belt cities. Yeah, I want to follow up just for a moment on that boom and bust cycle on the bad times. I mean, I think when a lot of us think about Pittsburgh, especially in the post-World War II era, it was a manufacturing city. It was a steel city. It was steel town. It was booming. And then something happened. The economy for steel got hollowed out maybe in the 70s and 80s. And it seemed like for a long time, Pittsburgh was on the ropes. But it sounds like from what you just said, and also from this report that y'all have put together, that it's really a much different place now. We talk a lot about the decline in manufacturing here in the United States, but it's hard to overplay just how much a dramatic economic impact the decline in U.S. manufacturing has had for the Rust Belt and industrial Midwest, particularly in the late 70s through early 90s. You're talking about places, and Pittsburgh was at the heart of this, that suffered a multi-decade Great Depression, essentially. I mean, in 1980, Pittsburgh had over 18% unemployment rate. 75% of the steel in this city just simply vanished overnight. 130,000 jobs were completely lost. Just an economic impact that I think is hard for many of us to even imagine. And this is what the city looked like for the better part of a decade. 
But through good planning, through a little luck, through a philanthropic community that's second to none, the city has, in fact, remade much of itself very much in the last 10 years. And the thesis of our report, I think the data backs this up, is much of that is tied to the strength of the universities here in Pittsburgh, the medical centers and the hospital systems, and actually advanced manufacturing, so very high-end manufacturing that weathered the storm. And we can talk about why that happened. But it's a very, very different place. Those assets, the universities, the medical centers, and advanced manufacturing and others, I think are examples of, when you write today, Pittsburgh is once again at the precipice of a new competitive reality. And obviously those assets feed into that. When you think about the competitiveness for a city, what exactly are you talking about? Right. And so taking a step back, the reason why Pittsburgh became a city to begin with is because its rivers allowed good access to major markets, both domestically and globally, for steel. So that was its competitive advantage. We're all very familiar with sort of traditional ways of thinking about competitive advantage, the number of workers you have, transportation infrastructure. But Pittsburgh, as with many, many cities in the developed world, the new competitive advantage is the ability to translate technology and innovation and often scientific discovery into commercial products and services and export them globally. This is, in fact, the only way that a relatively high-wage city and a high-wage economy can thrive globally, which is to innovate. So how is that happening? What are the specific assets in Pittsburgh that have allowed it to do that? It really comes down to four key players. They're interlinked. Universities, academic medical centers, the foundation community, and then advanced manufacturing. And so quickly marching through those universities, you've got the University of Pittsburgh, which is a life science powerhouse. You've got Carnegie Mellon University, the number one computer science program in the country. Together, they have well over a billion dollars of federally funded research occurring here adjacent to the universities, which are, you know, I'm actually currently doing this interview at the University of Pittsburgh, and I can look out my window and see Carnegie Mellon. They're right next to each other. And then you also have UPMC here, which is the hospital system, the health system in Pittsburgh. It's the largest employer in the state of Pennsylvania, and it is a major driver of innovation. On top of that, you've got several major foundations that, unlike many foundations that invest, you know, in the arts and culture and amenities, these foundations have invested in translating academic and scientific work from the universities into young startups, into existing companies, into commercial products and services in a number of different ways. And over the last 30-plus years, the city has developed a series of competitive competencies in these technology areas that have put this city on the map globally. You talk about in the report the need for an innovation city, and you just mentioned it a few minutes ago, to translate all of those technology advantages into new products, into broad-based economic opportunity and growth. But it seems to me that you suggest in the report that those outputs are a little bit lacking in Pittsburgh's case. Is that That's right. the right reading? That's exactly right. The way I think about Pittsburgh from this innovation city perspective and global player is almost dramatically glasses half full, glasses half empty. The glasses half full part is that this city has the feedstock 
to become a global player and to drive broad-based economic activity because of its research assets. That you can't make up. You can't fake it. You can't import it. You either have it or you don't. This city has it. It produces over 230% the university research and publications as the national average. You've got some areas like robotics that are like four or 500 times the national average. So the glass is half full is it has the inputs to drive the economy based on these features. The glass is half empty side of this is what you just said. We aren't yet seeing broad-based economic growth or opportunity coming from those. A number of factors. One factor, I think, is while these have been in the making for, you know, more than a couple decades, in relative terms, Pittsburgh's still somewhat new to the game. So if you look at, for example, federal funding of healthcare universities, universities that focus on healthcare, the University of Pittsburgh ranks number five. The other universities like Harvard and MIT and others, these have been institutions that have been in the top 10 for 200 years. UPIT has been on this list for less than a decade. So it's a process there and, and it doesn't happen overnight. So another area is in advanced robotics. Pittsburgh is, as I'm sure you know and your listeners know, the sort of playground for autonomous cars, autonomous vehicles. But that's just at early stages. So the short answer is the technology areas that Pittsburgh's good at are just now coming online. So that's part one. Part two is the other things that need to happen, developing the workforce, making sure young companies are growing. A number of those things just aren't happening at a fast enough rate to take advantage of the technical capacity. So we have a number of recommendations to help force multiply that activity. Well, I want to go into those recommendations here in a moment. Before that, I'll note a data point that caught my eye. You note that the city has 7% fewer jobs in high-wage, high-tech advanced industries now than it did in 2000, 17 years ago. Why is that? And maybe use that as a launching pad into some of your recommendations for how to correct that issue. Absolutely. So this is going back to our opening conversation about the decline in manufacturing and the Rust Belt and just what this region has experienced in the last 30 years. You're seeing some of that in that statistic. So that statistic, advanced industries, something that I've worked on with a number of colleagues like Mark Miro at Brookings, and what that piece of that number is, is manufacturing. Despite the fact that you've got global robotics technology being developed, you have seen an exodus of major manufacturing companies throughout the Pittsburgh region, as you have seen throughout the entire Rust Belt region. To give you another example of this, coming out of the recession, Pittsburgh, the metropolitan area, ranks 95th out of the top 100 for population growth. It's been losing population. So there are big macro forces that are underplay in this entire region, and Pittsburgh hasn't been immune to that. So the goal is, and we can get into the recommendations, the goal is to use the strength of the universities and other innovation anchors to overcome what is really pulled down, frankly, a lot of the Rust Belt region. I think another interesting aspect of your report and of Pittsburgh generally, and we should talk about it here, is the Oakland neighborhood. It's what you call an innovation district, which I know is a whole other stream of research that Brookings scholars are doing. So would you talk about what is an innovation district and explain the importance to Pittsburgh of the Oakland neighborhood? 
So innovation districts are a concept my colleagues Bruce Katz and Julie Wagner came up with, identified several years ago. And basically what they are is neighborhoods in very large cities, usually mid-sized cities, large cities, and they're usually anchored by a major research university or academic hospital. And they produce economic growth by the interplay between those research institutions and the firms that cluster nearby. The firms, the entrepreneurs, they are sort of dense innovation playgrounds. They are like Kendall Square in Cambridge near MIT and Harvard, the Midtown Atlanta area near Georgia Tech. So hubs of intense both commercial and innovation activity. So that's kind of what they are. The Oakland neighborhood, which is the neighborhood where the University of Pittsburgh, UPMC, and Carnegie Mellon are located in, may be one of the most naturally occurring innovation districts in the country, if not world. Like I said, I'm sitting in my temporary office in the University of Pittsburgh, and I could throw a rock and hit Carnegie Mellon University. It's 1.7 square miles, but represents 29% of the jobs. You can take a walk around that 1.7 square miles and cover one-third of the entire state of Pennsylvania's research at universities. So it is it is a powerhouse of activity in a highly concentrated area. And I think with the way we look at it, it is the hub to the spokes of the different sort of employment hubs in the region. So taking some of the strengths in the district and applying them to regional actors, be those manufacturers in the suburbs or energy companies in the exurbs, or even technology companies across the river, this is how Pittsburgh will experience economic growth. I read in the report that the Oakland district is also surrounded by high-poverty, low-wage neighborhoods. So how do city leaders of Pittsburgh take advantage of the powerhouse of the Oakland Innovation District, but also try to figure out what to do to raise living standards, raise wages, improve the job prospects of people who live right there in that same neighborhood? This is an ever-present issue for every innovation district that I've ever worked in because it's an ever-present issue in every city. The struggle to address both high wealth and high value areas that are right next door to some of the poorest citizens. And that's certainly the case here in Pittsburgh. So one, the opportunities are significant. To give you an example, here in Pittsburgh, there's over 100,000 jobs in healthcare. 55% of those don't require a bachelor's degree. You have a number of growing training programs and whatnot to sort of meet a lot of those needs and, and to address those issues. So there's opportunity there. The question is whether or not the local stakeholders will do what's necessary to capture that opportunity. And obviously here there's fairly obvious two-part process, right? So one, you need policies and programs to address the high poverty. So you need not only those training programs that can get people in the door, but to be completely frank, a lot of the individuals in these neighborhoods don't have the prerequisites to even begin the training program. So there's long-term hard issues. Sometimes I think when we try to fix these inclusion issues, we do it on the cheap and we say, oh, you know, build it and they will come type of thinking. These are hard long-term issues. And the second piece of the puzzle, obviously, is resources. And that's where the district really is going to play the most part. It's not going to be in the University of Pittsburgh creating a training program for poor people in an adjacent neighborhood. It's creating a company that grows and creates a tax base. You have to have that economic growth engine that's sustainable, that's producing tax revenue in a way that can build these programs. So 
I think those are the two pieces, one workforce development, particularly in healthcare, and then, you know, it sounds generic, but you need that broad-based economic growth to have the tax revenue to do any of these things for these neighborhoods. It's time now for Ask an Expert, where I invite you, the listener, to send in a question, and I find an expert to answer it. Here's my colleague, Chris McKenna, who will read our listener's question. Thanks, Fred. Just a reminder to listeners that if you record your question as an audio file, we'll play it on the air. Here's a question sent by email to bcp at brookings.edu. My name is Alan Schoen, and I'm a data scientist in the aerospace industry in Northern Virginia. I studied computer science and neuroscience in college, so I have no real education in the social sciences, but I'm interested in a lot of issues related to economics and social welfare, and I have a question about unemployment. Over the last decade, we have seen very low unemployment rates, yet polls show that most Americans don't believe that unemployment is at historic low. At the same time, the labor force participation rate has decreased. I've heard a range of narratives about this in the media, some suggesting that the American public is acting like a bunch of hypochondriacs. Quote, everything's great, so why are you mad? In my career as a data scientist, I've found that when your metrics show that everything is fine, but your customer is panicking, you should probably listen to the customer because it's probably your metrics that are wrong. That leaves me with a question for an expert on labor economics. Is the Bureau of Labor Statistics unemployment rate still a good measure of the health of the labor market? If not, are there any metrics to watch that might show why Americans are so upset about the economy? Thanks for your question, Alan. I'm Ryan Nunn. I'm the policy director for the Hamilton Project at the Brookings Institution. So I think this is a great question because it gets us thinking about the different ways that people interact with the labor market and what sorts of questions we have to ask to fully understand their experiences. It's true that relatively few people are out of work and actively searching for employment. That's the official definition of unemployment. The unemployment rate stands at 4.4% in August 2017, which is right around its level in 2006 and 2007 before the Great Recession. This is a useful question to ask, how many people out of work are actively searching. But it's not the only important question. We could ask a simpler question. What percent of the population is employed? For 25 to 54-year-olds, the answer to that is 78.4%, which is about a point and a half below its pre-recession level. By that measure, the labor market is looking somewhat worse. In fact, that employment rate has actually been falling since about 2000. Another measure that tells a similar story is the share of those who are involuntarily part-time, people who are underemployed. There are now about half a percentage point more such workers, amounting to nearly one million people, than there were before the recession. I think it's also important to emphasize that the strength of the economic recovery has been relatively weak for certain groups. If you're a member of one of these groups or know people who are, you may not evaluate the labor market in quite the same way. For example, those with less education have fared especially poorly. In some previous work with Diane Schanzenbach, Lauren Bauer, and Audrey Breitweiser, we looked at the recovery in employment rates that occurred after the Great Recession. After we took account of population growth and aging, we saw that those with at least a four-year college degree had recovered their pre-recession level, but those with less than a four-year degree are still about two percentage points below their pre-recession employment rate. But perhaps the most important factor in explaining widespread dissatisfaction is the long-run wage stagnation for low- and middle-income workers. 
Adjusted for inflation, the typical worker earns only slightly more than they did in the early 1970s. When people compare their economic situation with that of their parents at the same age, I suspect that many are not very happy. Even during this long recovery from the Great Recession, wage growth has been relatively low. When you adjust for inflation, it actually looks considerably better because inflation has been so low lately, but that may not make workers feel much better. So to sum up, I think that the BLS official unemployment rate is a great statistic for understanding the health of the labor market, but it's certainly not the only one. And as we look at a number of those statistics, we get a somewhat more nuanced picture of the labor market and its health right now. So all that said, I think we can hope that unemployment stays low for quite a while yet, allowing workers to gain more ground before the next recession strikes. You can learn more about Ryan Nunn and the Hamilton Project at hamiltonproject.org. He and Jay Shambaugh, director of the Hamilton Project, were my guests on a recent episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, talking about why more Americans aren't working even 10 years after the Great Recession hit. Alan, thanks for your question, and look for a Brookings coffee mug in the mail as a token of my thanks. And now back to my discussion with Scott Andes about Pittsburgh, and stick around afterward to learn more about the digital divide in broadband subscription. Let's continue into recommendations. As listeners to this podcast know, I talk to Brookings scholars about their research and its analysis of the problem, but quite often, if not most of the time, it's also recommendations for what to do about the problem. So let's move into that part. It's all detailed in this report, but just at a high level, talk about what are some of the key recommendations that you and your co-authors are making about Pittsburgh? We have four buckets of recommendations. The first is what we call innovation clusters. So we look at life sciences and healthcare, advanced manufacturing, and what we call autonomous systems. So that's all the stuff that goes into self-driving cars. In each one of those, so one, those are clusters, industry clusters and technology clusters that Pittsburgh's already good at. So start with what you're good at. And then we walk through a number of recommendations for each one of those three on how to build those clusters. So essentially, you've got in healthcare, we need to move more of the technology and research out of the university and into companies. So that's what we consider translational science, and there's a number of ways to do that. In advanced manufacturing, you've got substantial amount of activity going on at the high end of the advanced manufacturing spectrum, people making advanced robotics and whatnot, but connecting those to regional supply chains. Often these are small and medium-sized companies in the suburbs and in the larger metropolitan area. That's been missing. So we've got to connect the supply chain to the technology to allow them to grow. And then the third cluster around this autonomous systems, this is a platform. The technology that goes into what makes Ubers drive themselves, self-driving cars, that will be applied in almost every industry we can think about. It'll happen in healthcare. There'll be autonomous activity in manufacturing and wholesale and retail. Every sector will be touched by autonomy the same way every sector has been touched by digitization and the internet. And so Pittsburgh needs to think about how it can can make those connections into all those different industries. For example, finance is pretty big here. You've got PNC headquartered in Pittsburgh. What's the strategy to connect the financial industry with this autonomous system? So that's bucket one, clusters. Bucket two is building out this Oakland Innovation District. There are many strategies to do that. One, for example, is to build out a better tech attraction strategy. The city is not very good at 
figuring out how to attract technology companies that may be interested in it anyway. So what does that look like? The third bucket is around high-growth entrepreneurs. As I said earlier, Pittsburgh's pretty good at starting young companies. They're just, we aren't seeing those young companies scale and grow. How do we connect them with mentors? How do we connect them with access to capital? What do we need to do to make sure that companies that are growing both stay in Pittsburgh and those young companies are, in fact, growing as quickly as they can? And then the final bucket is around inclusion and workforce development. And here we really think connecting the large anchors, the universities and the hospitals, to low-income individuals through training programs and other opportunities will be key to expanding the economic opportunity to the full community. So you have these four very large recommendations. What's the next step? You and your co-authors have written this report. You've done this research to produce this wonderful report. What kinds of activities do you take next to try to help these policy ideas come into being? That's a great question. And oftentimes, frankly, what we do is we produce these papers and we help stakeholders understand them, and then it's their job to really implement them. However, in the Pittsburgh Project, we're doing something a little different, whereas I am actually in Pittsburgh. I'm now currently, like I said, in the University of Pittsburgh for three months where I'm helping the team on the ground implement these strategies. So today I have a series of meetings where we're going to try to figure out how do young companies and companies around the world who are looking at Pittsburgh because of their technologies access Pittsburgh. So do they call an engineer at one of the universities or do they call the mayor's office? How do we develop a strategy to attract companies. So that's just one example of several. Brookings is very active in actually helping the players on the ground implement these strategies. A second area that we do that I think is a little different than than traditional work done at Brookings and other think tanks is we help build the coalition of institutions needed to pursue this work. So here in Pittsburgh, we have spent most of our 18 months advising the leadership at the two major universities, the mayor, the county executive, some of the largest foundations and corporate community to build a group of stakeholders, they call it PGH, to both fund and direct the outcome of these recommendations. Somebody's got to pay for it and somebody's got to do it. And these are the stakeholders who are going to do it. So we've also helped them build that leadership group as well. Well, maybe you'll also tell them all to listen to this podcast episode, and maybe that'll help. Absolutely. You and Bruce Katz have written that Pittsburgh is among the 30 or so global cities that are positioned as leaders in next-generation technologies. So what are those other cities, the U.S. and global cities, that are Pittsburgh's peers? It really needs to come down to what you're talking about. So one is you've got places that look similar from a technology and industry perspective. So these are places, so let's take autonomous systems, self-driving cars. You've got the obvious examples of like Detroit, Ann Arbor, Dearborn, we'll just group those together because of the massive amounts of R&D the big three are doing in Michigan. So that's a no-brainer. But then you've also got places like Stuttgart, Germany, that are headquartered to major automobile companies and that are making some of the largest investments in autonomous systems systems in the world. So that's sort of bucket one, is you've got your peers based on the intersection between the technology Pittsburgh's good at and the industries those correspond with. Then you've got another peer cities that look like Pittsburgh in terms of their entrepreneurial ecosystem. And these are these cities that I think are kind of tier twos. So you've got like Raleigh, Durham type areas. Aspirational cities would be like Austin and 
maybe Tel Aviv, though that would be very aspirational. But these are cities that have sort of that entrepreneurial ecosystem, but they're not at the San Francisco, Boston level yet. And then finally, you've got what I'm most interested in is cities that are using their academic anchors, be those medical schools and hospitals or universities, to grow their economies. And these are cities like Melbourne, Atlanta, Quebec. I'd even put Seattle in this, but they might be a little bit further along. Again, I think there's a grouping of these things depending on where you're looking at. But those would be the ones kind of off the top of my head that I would consider to be peers, quote unquote. I do want to say one thing, though. It's a great question to wonder about peers, but the world is changing so quickly, particularly in the autonomous space and other technology areas that Pittsburgh's good at, that it really is less about where they're ranked and who has the table stakes currently to launch ahead. So the list I just gave you will look radically different in three years. So really, it depends on who decides to make the right investments and when. That's going to dictate who leads. And is Pittsburgh a top 30 global city, as we'd say it could be, or are they, you know, doing pretty good compared to the Rust Belt? That's that is an open question. I think that's a really interesting point, and you've made it throughout this conversation and in your writing, is that it's about good planning, it's about long-term planning, and these kinds of things that the regional and the city leaders, other stakeholders like think tanks and universities, are actually planning this out. It just doesn't happen by itself, right? That's right. These are strategic visions. There's a lot that cities, and just like businesses, there's a lot that cities and businesses can't change about their trajectory. These are the sort of, you know, like I said, you either have it or you don't. In the places like Pittsburgh that have it but aren't there yet, the difference will 100% be what they decide to do over the next five to 10 years. To be just completely blunt, I'm optimistic on Pittsburgh, but this city could go either way. Let me take the focus back from the global and national back into the local and ask you about a concept called new localism. You and Bruce Katz, in a recent piece on CityLab.com, write that Pittsburgh is an example of new localism. And I know that Bruce, along with co-author Jeremy Nowak, is going to come out with a book next year through Brookings Press called The New Localism. Can you talk about what new localism is and why that concept is particularly relevant today? Yeah, and I should say you should definitely have Bruce and Jeremy on to do a podcast on it when the book comes out. I Absolutely. Think your listeners would really enjoy it. But in brief, new localism is essentially the concept that power, and I define that as political and financial and civic, is devolved from the traditional players in the federal government to activity at the local level. So what does that mean? That means you have a city like Pittsburgh where – 20 years ago, a vast amount of the resources that came into the city came perhaps through the federal government. We certainly see that with the university funding, but that is changing due to a number of constraints, both at the federal level and opportunities at the local level, the mix of resources and who will dictate how those resources are being used is becoming more locally driven. In Pittsburgh, it's a foundation. The foundations here are doing that. The universities are doing that. The corporate communities, the corporate actors that are invested in Pittsburgh are doing that. It's not just driven by what the state is doing or the federal government is doing. Right now in Harrisburg, the state legislator is considering cutting almost all of the university funding to major public universities, which would just be detrimental. This is the world we live in, where Pittsburgh's greatest economic strength, its two universities, have to drive to Harrisburg and convince legislators not to gut $150 million out of their budget. And it's just, 
It's insanity. So the question becomes who will step up. And the concept of new localism is that that will necessarily have to be more of a local play. Bruce and Jeremy, if y'all are listening to this episode, and I hope you are, you are hereby invited to appear on a future episode of the Brookings Cafeteria to talk about your book. Scott, let's wrap it up this way. In your report, you talk about Pittsburgh 2030, two different visions of Pittsburgh in that time. What are those visions? There are two ways one can envision Pittsburgh's future. So in one scenario, the high-end elements of Pittsburgh, its universities, its health systems, continue to be global. So a hundred of the best computer scientists in the world graduate from Carnegie Mellon every year. There will still be some young companies scattered associated with those, but by and large, those companies will go to the coasts when they get big enough that they need venture capital. And for the majority of Pittsburgh, the city will look like many of its Rust Belt peers. Population will continue to decline. Income will not rise and may even decline itself. And quality of life will be radically different depending on the neighborhood you're in. It'll be a more dramatic version of the present. That's sort of, I think, uh, scenario number one. Scenario number two is that the connective tissue between what the universities and innovation anchors are in the city and the broader economy is extremely strong. You have workforce training programs, so kids in poor neighborhoods are actually becoming med techs in the hospital and earning $80,000 a year. You have young companies that have access to capital so they can grow and stay in Pittsburgh and employ not dozens of workers, but thousands of workers. You have corporate partners from around the world beginning to flow into Pittsburgh, setting up shop because they understand they can easily work with the university and they have the workforce there. And Pittsburgh is the type of city where their employees want to live. There's fun things to do. It's a vibrant place. In this scenario, you still can't get a lifelong manufacturing job with a high school education like you could 30 years ago. That still won't be the case, but everybody has opportunities to play a role in the innovation economy. The innovation economy and Pittsburgh's economy are one and the same. But I really do think that those are sort of somewhat dramatic, but those are the two sort of visions that could play out here. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. Happy to be here. You can find the report, Capturing the Next Economy, Pittsburgh's Rise as a Global Innovation City, on our website, brookings.edu. In a new report from the Metropolitan Policy Program at Brookings, Adi Tomer, Elizabeth Nebone, and Ranjitha Shivaram find that although 93% of Americans live in neighborhoods where high-speed broadband wireline service is available, A large number of Americans, including millions of children, live in neighborhoods where in-home broadband subscription rates fall below 40%. Here are two of the researchers to tell you more about the issue. Just over two decades into the digital revolution, and the internet is an unquestioned foundation of the modern American economy. Similar to the introduction of electricity in the 20th century, an innovation that changed how people lit their rooms, cooked their food, and entertained themselves. The internet is redefining how the 21st century household operates. Hi, I'm Adi Tomer. And I'm Ranjita Shivaram. And we work at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program and focus on infrastructure. A high-speed internet connection, known as broadband, is the newest essential infrastructure. 
Wireline broadband, where service is delivered through a physical cable connected to every home and business, is the productivity workhorse of our broadband network. It provides the high-speed bandwidth and redundancy to unlock the Internet's economic benefits, including new ways to educate, employ, bring services to, and even entertain every person. Yet in order to maximize its economic potential, broadband must be both available and adopted. In the first case, that means a physical connection to every home. But that also means every household must subscribe to broadband service, much like we expect from an electric or water utility. Unfortunately, America's digital divide is extensive. Over 22 million Americans live in neighborhoods where high-speed internet service is simply not available, including an outsized share of rural residents. Yet for neighborhoods where broadband is available, over 73 million people live in areas of low adoption, and many economically at-risk groups, such as the school-age population, low-income households, and less educated residents are the most impacted. There's not one metropolitan area spared from some form of broadband constraint, whether via a lack of available service or pockets of low subscribership. Let's now travel to Louisville, Kentucky, for a microcosm of the country's broadband challenges in metropolitan America. The home of the Derby and baseball bats does a relatively good job getting broadband service to its neighborhoods, leaving just under 4% of people without service, all of which is in the outer exurbs. But the bigger challenge is broadband adoption. Over 230,000 people live in neighborhoods of low subscription, while only 102,000 live in high subscription neighborhoods. Especially troubling are the city's high poverty neighborhoods, of which the majority show low subscription rates. These subscription gaps drag Louisville down to 65th out of 100 metro areas in our combined ranking system. It joins many southern peers like Memphis and Charleston in the lower third of the country. These gaps are one key reason why Louisville continues to pursue improvements to its broadband infrastructure and services provided along those cables. In fact, Louisville was just home to a major national case on broadband deployment. Originally stated to be one of the first cities in the United States to receive Google Fiber broadband internet, the city of Louisville was embroiled in a legal battle with AT&T over the use and regulation of utility poles. While a federal court recently upheld Louisville's law to allow providers to rearrange other providers' cable attachments, the case could still be appealed. Yet, as it stands, the decision should improve local broadband service and, ideally, boost subscribership through a mix of pricing and competition. The Louisville example illustrates the need to address broadband availability and subscription gaps through a balanced policy framework and true collaboration between the private, public, and civic sectors. The federal government, with the aim of balancing availability and adoption goals, should enact policies to reduce deployment costs, leverage public data more effectively, and sustain adoption-focused programming. Local stakeholders, meanwhile, should seek to align data and programs to reflect local needs. Two-plus decades into the digital revolution, the country's digital divide is both persistent and pervasive. Market demand for broadband connectivity will only continue to grow as more and more economic, social, and government activity moves to the digital connected world. 
As that growth occurs, it is paramount that policymakers work to ensure that no one gets left behind by the deployment of this generation's essential infrastructure. Their report and a neighborhood-level interactive map to track broadband subscription rates in your neighborhood is on our website. Also, check out the interview that my colleague Adriana Pita did with Adi and Elizabeth on a recent episode of The Intersections Podcast. That does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reboredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Pamela Berman and Julian Chung. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>